We're in a very brief topical series. Emphasize the word very brief. Last time I taught something like this four years ago, I took four Sundays. I was planning on doing it in three, and now it's just two. So last week and this week, for those of you who have been sat under a lot of expository preaching or yourselves um, are a part of doing it, maybe it's an inside joke for us that uh, we're super eager to just get back to it. So we're gonna, we finished up our series in Luke. We're going to jump into the second volume of Luke's writing, which is Acts, um, and we're going to begin that next week. But for now, even, we are, we are, as promised, we're in a season revisiting this theme of who we are and what we do as God's people. And it's probably helpful to us, isn't it, to revisit from time to time, particularly in seasons of growth and change, to... Think about what God's vision is for the church. And as we, we, we said last week, maybe thinking about God's vision for the local church, what if we just tried to obey a simple version of what God has told us to be and do? One of the verses we looked at was 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, And we tend to say we are his, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of called, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God is making his glory known. God is making his glory known, and we exist to proclaim his excellencies by being set apart to him and by being witnesses to the world. So one of the other verses that we've been focusing on is Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So our mission, based on the fact that we exist to proclaim God's excellencies because He is making Himself known, our mission is to call people to grow in holiness, call ourselves to grow in holiness, and to call others to faith in Christ, and then to nurture them to become mature disciples. Again, we are His, and Him we proclaim. Toward that goal, we said, we call ourselves and others to these four things, believe in Christ, belong to His body, be trained in truth, and be strong in ministry. So in order to address this one more time, I've posed each of these topics for you in the form of a question, and the questions will move progressively from foundational to more practical. Why does it matter whom you believe and what you believe? And where should you look? Why does it matter? Nothing could matter more. Whom you trust informs where you look for what you believe. Let me say that one more time. Whom you trust informs where you look for what you believe. In other words, many of you have experienced that uh, on Facebook, the information you gain there is not necessarily trustworthy, right? People can project and say anything they want to on social media. So where do you primarily look for, for trustworthiness? You even have discovered that in watching the news, that the news itself is presented from a biased perspective almost always. 
So we're being forced to evaluate carefully those things. But this is especially true in human relationship to the divine. Whom you trust informs where you look for what you believe, and then what you believe informs everything that you do. Or you might say that it informs everything that you think, feel, say, and do. So whom do you believe? We believe the triune God of the Bible. Again, John 17 verse 3 says, Jesus in this high priestly prayer to the Father says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We believe in the triune God of the Bible. We believe that God has revealed himself universally in his creation, timelessly in sacred scripture, and uniquely through the God-man Jesus Christ. All of this necessarily means that the Bible is the central place to know what and even whom to believe. It is scripture that gives us the confines of how much we know about God from nature. If God has revealed himself in creation, it's even in scripture that we find out what the scope is of what God communicates about himself in nature. Basically, he gives us enough through his creation to know that he exists and therefore that we are culpable for not seeking him, Romans 1. It is scripture that teaches us the perfections and the purposes of God and scripture that reveals our rebellion against God. Our such a sin nature that we have applies to every single one of us. It is scripture where God declares that submission to him by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord is the only means to be restored to God. All of these things come through Scripture, and we could list quite a few more we believe statements that summarize essential teachings in Scripture, which we call doctrines. But the simple point is this we must submit to God on His terms in order to be right with Him. And those terms He reveals in sacred Scripture, the Bible. So we must therefore study and apply God's word to be healthy and useful children of God. Sound doctrine is a must. Titus 2.1 says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound, the Greek word there, means healthy. And the word doctrine is the Greek word that means teaching. So what Paul tells Titus is that you need to teach what accords with healthy teaching. Healthy teaching from Scripture is a must. That's why it is so central. Because of this singular focus on the Bible as our only true safe means to know God. That's my way of saying it. Scripture is the only way that you can be sure that you are knowing God on His terms. And not something that you are trying to invent on your terms. You're not trying to create a God in your own image like the Greek gods. No, in Scripture, you learn that God created you in His image, and you have marred that image. And God restores you to some measure of the image that He desires from you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then He desires to continue transforming you into the image of Christ, which is that which He created for you. God is doing all these things to manifest His own glory, to make Himself known to the creatures whom He has made for His glory. But the Bible is the place where we know 
who God is, what he expects from us. And because of that, the world accuses us of being closed-minded. And that shouldn't be true of you. You can believe that scripture is where God communicates to us without being closed-minded. In fact, the majority of our society is completely closed-minded and refusing to consider the possibility that perhaps God communicates himself somewhere in a sacred text. And even others who call themselves Christians might mock us for supposedly elevating the Bible to be the fourth member of the Godhead. Also clearly not true. We just know that the Bible is the place where the Godhead is communicated. We have to look there. Without God's special revelation in the Bible, we don't know whom to trust or what to believe. So we stick to the Bible as the backbone for everything that we do. Mainly, we aim to let God speak. That's what we mean by expositional or expository. We mean what God says, the way that he says it, why he says it, and how he expects us to respond. So I sort of use this opportunity to talk about what we believe to explain to you why in our methodology we focus so much on expositional teaching of God's word as the backbone for who we are and what we do. Now, the study and application of God's word is something that you should be doing, of course, even on your own, just like having a private prayer life of communion with and dependence on God. But is it enough to study the Bible on your own? Well, I'm guessing that since you're here, you don't think so. And not because you think that you can't learn to study the Bible the same way that I learned to study the Bible and then try to communicate to you the apostles' teaching or the Old Testament portrayal of the faithfulness of God and what he is doing in his people that lead to Christ, right? Not that I believe that you can't study and do that. There's actually another reason that it isn't enough for you to do it alone. Can you keep to yourself and really be obedient to God? According to what you should be studying yourself in Scripture, can you keep to yourself and be obedient to God? No. Is it necessary to belong to a local church? Well, yeah, because you can't be the church without the church. The church is a plural entity. That's like trying to play football without a football team. Soccer without a soccer team. The church is plural by definition. You can't be the church without the church. Again, I know I'm preaching to the choir. I said this last time, kids, I don't know if I explained it. When we say preaching to the choir, we mean, you know, the people who are always in church, and they're always sitting there listening, they're even in the choir. You're here. At least you're gathered here on the Lord's day. When we say, and rightly so, that you can't attend church because you are the church, we don't mean that you by yourself are the church. No, we mean that you, plural, are the church. The people that God is making for his own possession to be the bride of Christ, you are the church. What are the metaphors, again, that the New Testament uses for the church? Last week we noticed that from this text that we reviewed already from First Peter, that 
one of the New Testament metaphors for the church is a building made out of living stones, of whom Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. Another metaphor is the body with its many members working in various ways. And it can't be a whole healthy body without all of those members. Another metaphor that we just mentioned is the bride of Christ. But you can't be the bride of Christ by yourself. We have to be the bride of Christ together. The church is the bride. Not even just one local expression of it. No, but the whole church is the bride of Christ. Again, the most common metaphor, because it was the Apostle Paul's image of choice, and you know, we have 13 letters from Paul, so he frequently mentions the body with its various members working together. Here's one example from Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Ephesians 4 is another example in which Paul instructs the believers in a given locality. Remember, I'm saying local expressions of the body of Christ are the situation in which Paul is applying this, even though he's speaking of the church at large, but he's applying this to bodies of believers in given locations. Just like here, in Branson, just like a church that meets together and serves together and challenges one another together to grow together. And in our culture, it's kind of wonky. You know, we give ourselves names. Branson Bible Church, First Baptist Church, United Methodist Church. But we're just aiming to be faithful expressions of the local body of Christ. So in Ephesians 4, in verse 1, he encourages the the believers to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord's calling. And then he begins to instruct them how to do that by functioning together like a healthy and growing body. Toward that end, the Apostle Paul will say, he will explain that they must maintain unity in diversity for maturity. That they must maintain unity. He explains that in verses 2 to 6. And then, in diversity, all of the, the, the gifting of the body of Christ in verses 7 through 11. And then he says, for the purpose of maturity, verses 12 through 16. For the sake of time, I can't read all of those verses for you. I actually love it when somebody tells me something about the Bible and then they read for me that whole section. And I'm like, that's exactly right. So I encourage you to go on your own and read Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 16 and notice the call to walk worthy And then the expectation that that we must do this together, we must be unified in our diversity for the purpose of maturity. Even the letters that Paul wrote instructing individuals, like the one to Timothy, are given within the context of that person serving a plural local expression of the body of Christ. That's why we shouldn't think of membership in a local church as signing on the dotted line and paying our dues in order to be a card-carrying member in the club. I've got a little sticker that says, Team Jesus. I actually don't have one of those. I'm not a big fan of any kind of bumper sticker. Sorry if you're a bumper sticker person. (laughs) No, membership in a local church is for accountability to the call of Christ 
to use your spiritual gifting and everything that God has given you, we often say your time, your treasure, your talents, everything that God has given you and your spiritual gifting to help the body function in a manner that is healthy and growing. So is it necessary to belong to a local church? Yes, it's essential that we belong to a local expression of the church, Big C Church, that is unified around knowing God from the word and unified around proclaiming the gospel and a a church that holds us accountable to be actively engaged in serving in whatever capacity helps to make disciples and to see us all growing together toward maturity in Christ. Remember, we're not saying that you apply this only within the context of these walls or in the programs of this local church. That's just silly. Programs in a local church, in fact, only exist because of the people that we have who are gifted to make it happen. The programs only exist to to hopefully help with the maturity of all the people that are involved in them. So even or especially when you serve Christ outside these gatherings, you are functioning as a member of the body of Christ and of this local church. But we as a church family do want to make an effort to help you foster healthy relationships in which living alongside like-minded believers will generate more real-world application and practical accountability to one another as we're pursuing faithfulness to Christ. To be set apart to him and to spread the good news that I'm going to tell you again, my latest definition of the gospel, the good news that God has offered himself to a sinful humanity through the Lord Jesus Christ, inviting them to respond in repentance and faith. Being set apart and maturing in our growth in Jesus Christ. So this is just one tool that we offer to you. I highly commend small groups as an avenue for biblical one-anothering. Let me ask you a quick question. If you are an active participant in a small group, and your answer to this is an enthusiastic yes, even if your answer is like, ho-hum, yeah, my small group's kind of lame, don't raise your hand. But if you believe that whether or not it's like super obvious and super intentional, but that what happens there is genuine accountability in the body of Christ, that what happens there ultimately, because you're, you're rubbing shoulders with other people, some groups and some leaders among us do an amazing job of like being really blunt about accountability. You know, they just ask you really hard questions to your face and you have to answer. Other groups are a little more subtle and they tend to, to ask subtle questions and then we... The accountability sort of is by rubbing off on one another. You know, like I'm around you and I see how you treat your spouse and I see how you handle parenting your children and it encourages me, it challenges me to be more faithful. I see you witnessing and it encourages and challenges me to be more faithful, right? So that level of accountability and application is happening. Let me ask you a question. Are you a part of a group, whether it's an official group from our church family or not? Do you have some close relationships that hold you accountable and help you apply God's word. Raise your hand, please. Raise your hand, please. Raise your hand higher, please. 
I want you to know, I don't want you to feel bad if you didn't raise, you can put your hands down. I don't want you to feel bad if you didn't raise your hand. I just want you to see that there are a lot of people around you saying enthusiastically, yes, this is really good for you. You should do this. You need this. I know it's hard. We're so busy. Like, are you kidding me? You want me to take another evening to do such and such? I know. Then cut out something else and do this. It's that beneficial to you. And I think some of us just don't know. The only reason you didn't raise your hand is because you haven't tried it yet. Find a group and plug in. Because it matters that much to your maturing in the faith. You cannot be the church without the church. So you may have another avenue, and that's fantastic. You know, the, the small groups that our church provides, that's not the only way for you to do this. But plug into relationships that hold you accountable and help you apply what God is teaching you in his word to your life. Now, in belonging to the church, we want to be obedient and effective with the gifting and experience that God has given us. So both you and your leaders must be invested in equipping and training. So I'm going to ask you a question that is intimidating for me, for our church leaders. Are we being equipped? Are we training for ministry? Equipping and training needs to be both practical and comprehensive. That's the part that intimidates me. Are you being comprehensively equipped and trained to be a faithful member of the body of Christ? Equipping and training still has to be centered around God's word. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And if you're a good Bible-believing Christian, you probably know this scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Where will we get what we need to be equipped and trained? God's word. We can't stray from that, but it still needs to be practical and comprehensive. We sincerely believe that the most helpful resource that we can give you is a growing knowledge and submission to the God of the Bible. So we're convinced that our core methodology, the center or the foundation for doing that is still expositional teaching. What did God mean when he taught the children of Israel through Moses? What did God mean when he taught them through Moses? How does he intend then for you to apply that now? What did the Holy Spirit intend to communicate through Paul to the Philippian church? What timeless truths does the Holy Spirit intend for us to comprehend, obey, and apply from what Paul says to the Philippian church? But we also realize that there are particular areas of teaching and growth in which we might benefit greatly by systematizing our teaching or, or focusing our practice to be trained in righteousness, to be equipped for every good work. You know that's true. Nowadays, we need to have a theology of getting fired. In order to live in the culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to any genuine form of biblical Christianity, you probably need to have a theology of getting fired. What will I do if push comes to shove, if this is where the rub hits, when will I be okay with saying this far and no further if they let me go, they let me go. 
How helpful is it to you to be around other parents who are doing their best to discipline and to train their children in the godliness presented in God's Word? To teach them first to fear God. God is the authority in your life. So even before the stage where where your children are old enough and mature enough to respond in faith to Jesus Christ, and you're still just praying for God's grace to change them. But even before that, you're training them that God is the authority over them. They should accept it now. And so therefore, you train them that God has placed you in a position of authority. You see what I'm saying? We have all these areas where we might benefit by growing in systematizing, training, equipping. So these are, let me explain them briefly. Equip and train are biblical words. They're important in the New Testament, especially in these contexts of the church building itself up. Equipped, the word equipped, which is in this verse in 2 Timothy 3.17, means to be fully outfitted with everything necessary for a task. You just picture a soldier actually getting fully dressed. Remember Ephesians chapter 6. Fully equipped for a task. And then it would be the process of being outfitted with what is everything that is needed. It can also mean, as in Ephesians 4.12, to bring someone to completion so that they are perfectly ready in every respect fit for a purpose. Again, you picture the soldier being fully outfitted to go to war. The word training is also used in the New Testament in two primary senses. And both sides of them are, are helpful for us to grasp. One means training or, or discipline in the sense in which a child is progressively trained, progressively disciplined by his or her parents over time to pursue God's wisdom and to forsake his own or her own folly. That's how it's used in the Second Timothy passage above. It is the whole education and instruction of a disciple then both the cultivation of mind and morals understood as the rearing and education of children. The whole education and instruction of a disciple. Here's another way that training is used. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. Have nothing to do, Timothy, with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The second word for training, gymnazo, is it indicates the kind of arduous physical exercise and, and practice that one undergoes to grow in endurance and in skill needed to persevere and to excel at a difficult task. It requires instruction and then it requires countless hours of practice. You don't go from couch to 10k overnight some of you have tried that before haven't you i'm just gonna go run 10k tomorrow i haven't done any training i hope i'm in reasonably decent shape if you say i hope i'm in reasonably decent shape you are not (laughs) you don't go from touching a basketball to the starting five overnight you go from touching a basketball to the starting five with tons of listening to instruction, tons of watching other players, and then countless hours of practicing the skills. Ask Nolan Tolliver. 
if he had to measure the number of hours that he has put into skill for basketball? How many hours are you putting into instruction in what God has for you as a believer in Jesus Christ? How many hours are you putting into the arduous task of what it's going to take to persevere and to grow in the skill necessary to look like Christ and to communicate Him clearly with conviction and boldness? We are committed to working hard at this at this time, this season in our church's life to figure out just as an example, how our, our Sunday school classes especially, but maybe other avenues as well, can give us more comprehensive equipping, and we're working on that. But there can't be any substitute for the apprenticeship method that Jesus and Paul and others have modeled for us in the New Testament. And that's something some of you have been asking about again, so I want to offer what I hope is a couple of simple tools that will be helpful to you this morning before we close. The task of mentoring or discipleship is one that we must be engaged in, and many of us probably are already engaged in them more than we realize. But we can certainly aim to be more intentional in the way that we do it. So this is my way, just briefly, of describing to you mentorship or discipling. Think big, start small, and go deep. Even though you really must be thinking big about discipleship, because It's nothing less than the glory of God among all the nations. That's the purpose of discipleship. So you have to think big, but the task of multiplying mature disciples means that we, one individual, can't disciple everybody. So we all have to be engaged. And that means that we can and we should just start small with one or two people and focus on going deep. And I know this is cheesy, but this is my tool for you. It's as easy as one, two, three. You have one goal, to know God better through his word and to grow in faithfully following Jesus. That's the one goal. You need two people. It takes two invested people willing to put in the work. Two invested people who are willing to sacrifice time and energy for the good of the other to the glory of God. If you offer to mentor someone and they're not going to be invested, you're wasting your time. If you desire to be mentored by someone, make sure you find someone that clearly has demonstrated they'll put in the work. Three areas to aim for growth, conviction, character, and competence. And I used to not be able to remember where I got these three things, but now after reading the book again, I can remember it's from The Trellis in the Vine by... Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, they say that there are three primary areas to aim for growth is the areas of conviction and character and competence. Here are just, there are so many, but here are just a couple of examples for conviction. When you're helping someone else to be discipled in the faith, you want them to be utterly convinced that God is good. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. And therefore, that his judgments, God's rules are righteous altogether. Psalm 19, verse 9. God is the authority over my life, and my obedience to his word is for my own good. 
Salvation is only by grace through faith in Jesus. The Christian life is lived in utter dependence upon God, and so on. But don't ever assume when you're dealing with one another that we know the foundational centrality of the goodness of God and that He is our highest good. So focus on that and go deep on those convictions. Examples for character. Good examples to think about for our growth in character is the put-off, put-on passages in Colossians and Ephesians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. But in just verses 12 through 15 of Colossians 3, we have these examples from Paul of the things that we should put on as God's people. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. And that's meekness is, is strength held in restraint like Jesus. Put on patience, bearing with one another. And if if one of you has a complaint against the other, be forgiving. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds them together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. The character qualities that you're going to grow in or that you need to grow in, you will discover those emanate from the nature of God. The focus is God himself again, and those are the character qualities that we will grow in or following the example of Christ. Some of the hardest qualities for us to grow in are things like humility and genuine compassion. And so we aim to help one another grow in those areas. In the area of competence, you might think of the particular skills for some given job, but you, you need to remember too to, to think of competence in, in the fundamentals of following Christ. Peter says, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So even as you're thinking of growing in skill in various things, do not forget to remind one another that competence in Christ is actually about the sufficiency of God. I am not sufficient for these things, but God is. That's why the Apostle Paul could tell the Corinthians that I'm going to celebrate weaknesses in myself because if you know that this power doesn't come from God, then you know where you should be looking, not to me, but to God. So then when I'm weak, I'm strong. That's the example we're trying to set for one another, even as we desire to grow in competence in specific areas. One more quick tool to help you if you feel unsure about getting started in mentorship. Four steps. It's so easy. (laughs) You can keep this and use it. Find someone to invest in. You have to find somebody. So that there are two of you. If just two of you feels awkward, then try three. You know, you've been in the room before, right? Where just trying to get one person to answer the questions is a little awkward. But if there are two, it's a little easier. Choose content and context. You have to have content because you need to have something to hang the conversation around. Whether that's a book, 
or a topic or a passage. You have to know the context. You, you have to decide together the frequency, the time, and the place that you're going to meet. Be consistent but flexible. You're going to have to make adjustments on the things that are tangible, right? And then you also really need to be evaluating progress on the intangibles. How are we growing? And take the person with you. Whenever you can, serve together, witness together, let them see your life. You can't replace the apprenticeship model. So your leaders in this church family feel a huge responsibility to help you with this endeavor. (laughs) And we need you saying to us and to one another, hey, I need help. I need suggestions. We need you to be sharing what you're learning and where you're learning it. All the time I'm thinking to, I'm overwhelmed because I'm thinking, I can't write a curriculum for that. You know, that's ridiculous. Anyways, we have so many good tools available to us in the English language that are based on God's word. And so there's no need to reinvent the wheel. The tools that you're using, please share them with us so that we can share them with others. And then tell us ways that you might feel inadequately equipped so that we can do our best to help you with tools and training or we'll find somebody else who can. (laughs) Hey, it's time for you to go to seminary. This is how I'd like to conclude this morning. I know I'm running up to our time limit. Why must we be strong in ministry? Because we were reborn for this. This is why you exist. God is making himself known and you get to be a part of that. You were reborn for this. God has called us unto himself to proclaim his excellencies by being set apart to him and to be his witnesses in the world. To see people grow to maturity. Anything less is a paltry version of true success. A paltry version of fulfillment. A paltry version of joy. We must be growing spiritually and making mature disciples. Why else must you be strong in ministry? Because the stakes are high. Like really high. This is nothing less than a spiritual life and death battle for souls. The stakes are really high. The enemy is wicked and powerful and cunning. Just consider, go look at Ephesians chapter 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. We need God's help. We've been invited to be on God's side. God is on God's side. God is doing what he is doing and you have been invited to be on that winning side. I hope, church family, you don't grow tired of me saying this, but God has geared us in this life such that we frequent reminding and refocusing. So I hope you don't grow tired of me saying that the Christian life is not a playground, but a battleground. Your community is not a theme park, it's a battlefield. You are not a spectator, you are a soldier. You are not of this world. You are a child of God whose citizenship is in his kingdom. You are not after paltry comfort and so-called fun. You are after nothing less than the deepest joy and greatest fulfillment of knowing God and obeying Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You 
that you are making yourself known. You have made yourself known by bringing all of these things into existence. You have made yourself known by making a people for your own possession out of the Israelites. God, you have made yourself known through the recording of sacred scripture as your Holy Spirit superintended and breathed out your truth. God, you have made yourself known uniquely and especially through the God-man, Jesus Christ. God, you continue to make yourself known by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in your people. We are floored, we are leveled, we are astounded to be people who have the indwelling Holy Spirit and whose responsibility and privilege it is to get to be a part of you making yourself known. We are inadequate for these things, God, but you are sufficient. Teach us from your word how we may draw close and abide in you. Thank you that you are doing these things for the sake of your own great name. Amen.